takes a disaster for us to come out of our shell, rethink the way we do things, rethink who's in the centre of the clinic, and when the patient is in the centre of the clinic, you can do nothing wrong. This is a podcast for hearing health professionals. If you are a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. We're excited to be here with Dr. Philip Cheng, who's an ear and cochlear implant surgeon in Sydney, Australia. And this is actually the first time that we're doing a live interview on the podcast, so that's a bit of a treat. Over to you, Dr. Cheng. Uh, Just for the benefit of our listeners, would you mind giving a bit of a brief intro or background about yourself? Thanks, Craig. It is good to be interviewed in person. And um, my background is that I specialise in ear and hearing implant surgery. I am the director and founder of both a paediatric and adult cochlear implant program here in Sydney. And we specialise in reaching and penetrating unpenetrated markets and patients, particularly in regional areas of Australia. Well, I actually wanted to kick off by asking you about that, because I know that you're involved with Hearing Implants Australia, which is a bit of an innovative take on cochlear implants for for the adult population. Uh, How did you fall into that? How did the need arise uh, for a program like that that reached out to folks in regional areas? It was really simple, Craig. What I saw when I founded the Pediatric Cochlear Implant Program, I saw that everything was roses. Yeah. Kids got everything. Yeah. They got early detection. They got early auditory verbal skills. Yeah. Families got the support. Kids got implant and implant funding. Yeah. Then if we go to the other end of the patients I look after, the adult population, and in particularly the elderly that is where we see something that, even in Australia, yeah. with our generous healthcare system, I am ashamed about. Yeah. It is abysmal um, how we serve the patients mm-hmm. in the elderly population. There's often a delay in them reaching the implant technology they need that could be measured in years and sometimes decades if they are referred at all. And as you know, we are only touching the tip of the iceberg when it comes to those that could potentially benefit from an implant in the adult world. So when I saw this discrepancy, I said the answer for adults lies before our eyes. Let's do for adults, senior adults, what we've been doing for decades for kids. It's interesting because I hear a lot of people talk about sort of technological innovation in hearing care and what can we do to make the technology better, outcomes better. But I'm kind of wondering, is is actually maybe innovation in care delivery more important as we think about how to reach the unpenetrated or those folks that like maybe don't get the care that they need or don't get access to quality hearing care? Absolutely. For the adult patient, particularly the elderly, particularly in regional areas, when they eventually make a decision to step forward to have cochlear implant surgery, Craig, they have 
taken a big leap of faith. So that leap of faith may just be simply the acknowledgement and recognition that their hearing has deteriorated to a point where their hearing aids are no longer strong enough. It could be a leap of faith to overcome distance. So in the Australia context, Mm -hmm. distance is a real hurdle. So uh, previously in another podcast, we uh, were interviewing an audiologist from Colorado. Yes. And she was talking about how um, she has a lot of patients from Wyoming who never really got the care they needed because of the distance. And um, so she actually ended up traveling back and forth to to do um, some of the initial assessments before they established more of a telemedicine-based program. But I'm I'm curious, how does it work for you at Hearing Implants Australia? How do you guys reach those folks? It's the other way around. Okay. Craig, we always had the technology there. Yeah. We have a lot of in-house know-how. Yeah. That has always, way before we knew what COVID was, promoted telehealth, telecommunication. Yeah. It was a necessary thing to be able to serve country and regional patients. And it was the key to engage and enlighten Mm -hmm. and upskill the referring clinicians from these regional areas. If you tell a patient who is eight hours out of Sydney by car... (laughs) Craig, you told them that you need to come in every three or four months yeah. to have a tweak of your program, it would be a deal breaker. Yeah. So the first is the recognition that a cochlear implant's needed, and the second is distance. Yeah. The third hurdle may be the surgery, yeah. may be surrendering one's last bit of vestigial hearing to the finality of a surgical procedure. And the fourth hurdle is the unspoken hurdle of cost and access. And that looks different in different countries, but it's something we really have to talk about. So they are the four hurdles. And where technology comes in is that those hurdles are better discussed we can show patients and their clinicians how to overcome those hurdles. We can work, yes, some of it is based by virtue of technology, but a lot of what we do comes from a change in the way we think. In the Hearing Implants Australia model, so you have an initial assessment in the local area and then everything else after surgery is done by telemedicine? Just about. And I know that sounds ambitious and audacious, but it's been bred out of need. Because, Craig, if you don't offer that, Mm -hmm. the other choice is nothing at all. In our drive to reach regional patients, to engage the referring clinicians, Mm -hmm. they are essential for the continued care of those patients. And we need to fit into the patient's model. So, Dr. Cheng, how do you convince the referring folks in the regional areas to refer to for a CI? Like, how do you get those providers upskilled enough to recognize when someone is a candidate? 
Craig, that is the million dollar question. (laughs) And the answer lies in looking after the patient, the patient and their partner and the patient and their family in whatever clinic format Mm -hmm. you may find them. So they may be with a, under the care in a regional area of an audiometrist or hearing aid dispenser. Because for eight hours around, there is no other hearing clinician. Yeah. So that's who it is. That is who it is. And continuity of care is not a courtesy. It's essential. Mm -hmm. There is no one else out there. Yeah. All right. Similar to Wyoming. Yeah. So we look after patients, whatever hearing context they're in. Yeah. Whatever partner and family context they're in and whatever clinic context they're in. So it means we have to be Mm open-minded. And when a clinician, audiologist or audiometrist, audiologist or hearing aid dispenser, has enough nows to refer, we must encourage them to do so further. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Yeah. We get them involved in the process. Yeah. We get them involved in the assessment. Mm-hmm. We get them involved in the counselling yeah. and the, the, the decision-making. We get that clinician looking after the other ear mm-hmm. uh, for all its hearing aid needs, particularly if it has pertinence or relevance to the implant that we may choose so that there is a synergy between devices. So let's say um, an audiometrist in um, some part of uh, regional Australia refers uh, a patient to you uh, and you guys do an assessment and a workup to see if they're a candidate for a CI. Would you then include the audiometrist to be part of that review? Yes. Ah, okay. Yes, yes. So that audiometrist is part of the whole journey. Yeah. That audiometrist is part of the assessment, yeah. is part of the counselling. Mm-hmm. As we are counselling the patient, we are actually also counselling the audiometrist. And do you find that they're generally like excited to be part of that or is there a bit of resistance? Absolutely. Ah, Absolutely. Okay. Right, right. Um, they, they are humbled to be involved in the process. Yeah. And we should be honoured that they are including a cochlear implant as a choice of a device yeah. for for those patients. Yeah. They see in their own clinic, yeah. in real time or virtually, mm-hmm. that patient that they've known for decades yeah. switched on and yeah. hearing in an unbelievable way. Mm-hmm. And once they see that, yeah. you mark my word, Craig, <laughs> they have 10 other patients yeah that they've been quivering about, not knowing whether they're candidates or not, and shoulder to shoulder Mm -hmm. or teleconference to teleconference, (laughs) we can work through all those patients. So our audiologists travel. Our audiologists go virtually or in real time Uh to where the patient and their clinician are 
to uplift both. Do you always do the surgery here in Sydney or is there ever a case where you might do it in a more regional area? Initially, all the surgery was done in Sydney. Yep. And that betrays what I've just spoken about. <laughs> yeah. So we have upskilled yep. um, local surgeons yep. Yep. and those local surgeons have become implant surgeons. Yep. They may present cases yep. that they're not sure about. Sure. And again, our audiologist travels to those implant surgeons and they are sorted out together. So one of the things that has cut through the butter, Craig, yeah. is the fact that with our program, uh -huh. the surgeon and the audiologist, the hearing implant audiologist, yeah. consult together. Yeah. In the same room at the same time. Someone they know, someone new. Yeah. Yes. So that um, there is a joint, a true joint opinion. So, Dr. Cheng, what you've proposed with a, a care model where uh, a lot of care is happening in regional areas and sometimes the surgery is happening there as well, I guess goes against the traditional care model and, and some might argue that there's a dilution of care there. What would be your response to that? That is a fair enough criticism. But imagine if this model worked and there wasn't a dilution of audiological or surgical care. That the more complex cases were coming to the more experienced surgeons in the metropolitan areas. Yep. That there was local capability and capacity that using the technologies we've just talked about, yeah. we can, at a higher level, sieve through all the complexities before they become complicated. Yeah. And we can use different parameters like quality of life, yeah. listening scores, to make sure that the quality of care is equal for regional and metropolitan areas, and our studies to date have shown they are equal. I'm, I'm curious, so your, your upskilling surgeons in regional areas, was there already a program that you had established uh, to help surgeons learn CI, or was this yes. something you had to create? No, so we already had that tool as well. Yeah. So for the last 20 years, I've always had residents, registrars, yep. fellows yep. that have trained with me in implant surgery yep. for children and adults. Yep and more complex ear work. Yeah. So we are gifting a surgeon to a community. Yeah. And we are gifting that surgeon with a community of patients yeah. where they can practice their craft, their skills, and their knowledge. And I guess I might ask the same question about the surgeons. Do you find it easy or challenging to convince a surgeon in a regional area to, to take up CI as a new specialty. So that has changed as well. Okay. <laughs> um, if we, tell me if I'm talking out of school, Craig. No, but, not at all. <laughs> uh, say 10 or 20 years ago, implants were sacrosanct. They were done by a handful of anointed surgeons okay. in major metropolitan cities. Okay. We wouldn't have that attitude to say cataract surgery. Yeah. or pacemaker surgery or knee surgery. Mm -hmm. So why do we have it with implant surgery? It's because we were more clinic focused. And yes, we needed to demonstrate those good 
dependable, reliable clinical results. Yeah. But now, and now more than ever, yeah. we can really be focused on where the patients are at geographically and audiologically. Yeah. Interesting. You know, I mean, it is, I think it is fascinating sort of with the rise of different technological avenues to treat people in regional areas. Like we have to sort of innovate around that as well to make sure that sort of the rest of the community, the rest of the profession is able and willing to treat those patients, even with technological advances like telemedicine. That yes. doesn't solve it all. It's yes. not the silver bullet. And what has landed in our laps, Craig, yeah. in the last nine months, mm-hmm. at least in Australia, clinicians and adult patients and yeah. senior adult patients have made more advances in the last nine months than they have in nine years yeah. in adapting to remote technologies on their computers, on their tablets, on their phones. So we use remote programs, remote programming. I think we're the first clinic probably globally to have group auditory sessions where all our implant patients, Craig, they video conference in and there is an auditory or listening exercise. Oh, okay. So it's kind of sort of like, it's exactly what you said, I guess. It's a group session, but done by Zoom or Exactly. So we have senior patients that have adopted to be able to achieve that. Computer technology, um, they're able to master video conferencing. Yeah. They're able to link their device wirelessly or otherwise to their computer. And what we've really done Mm -hmm. is we've empowered that patient to something they would have not done before. And when COVID struck, it was the camaraderie Mm -hmm. that these patients shared. So I'm curious, before COVID, did did you have sort of group sessions with folks um, like from regional areas or like that where you would do this or this was sort of born out of COVID and... Exactly, Craig. That was born out of COVID. Yeah. But the technology was right under our nose all the time. Yeah. Why did we do it during COVID? Why did it take COVID to prod us yeah. along? Yeah. Even at our progressive level? It was because the unspoken truth is that with COVID, yeah. patients with hearing loss are more isolated than ever before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could be because of the mask. It's because It is because of the loss of lip reading. Yeah. It's because of loss of listening to spoken speech rather than yes. computerised speech. Yeah. And so our implant patients yeah. needed a group or recession to show that they were not alone, that they were still supported, even if they no longer had the choice of reaching us in real time. My goodness, they could do it virtually, not only with us, but their peers. And so um, we dressed it up with, (laughs) (laughs) we dressed it up as trivia. Yeah, okay. Bingo. Okay. Um, a session on communication skills. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a session on how to be less dependent on your spouse to hear. Yeah. 
um, we ran a session on the grief of hearing loss. So then do those patients end up connecting with each other offline as well? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That was a gift of technology, technology that came out of COVID. And you think you'll stick with it after COVID? We have done studies. Yeah. We show that um, the patients that are engaged with those group sessions yeah. are more connected than those that are not engaged yeah. and gain greater use and benefit. It's a winner. Well, along the lines of engagement, I know, um, Dr. Chang, you've spoken a lot about prehab or prehabilitation. I was just curious, could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, like, yeah. what do you mean by that? What is what is that? So if we go back to an earlier podcast, if I can, <laughs> yeah. of, of Alicia Davis, yeah. um, who runs our pediatric cochlear implant program. Yep. The day that a family brings their baby in yeah. to one of the Shepherd Centre clinics, those parents are taught auditory verbal skills so that baby can listen, so that baby can develop language, speech, emotional maturity. The world's their oyster, right? And it doesn't start at the starting line of getting a cochlear implant. A cochlear plan is just something that may or may not happen in their journey. So why in adults, Uh senior adults, does rehab have to start when they have a cochlear implant? Mm. Surely for them, Mm. we should be foreseeing, yes, they may, they probably will, They definitely will need a cochlear implant. And the reality is, again, with cost and access, there may be a six-month or 12-month wait, we hope there isn't, to access that technology. So those adults should not sit there and twiddle their thumbs. They should get engaged. They should start the rehab for the hearing journey they're most likely to take with a hearing implant. So what does that look like? That means being armed with the knowledge about the hearing device they may eventually need. Mm. The listening skills, practice and strategies that they will use. Educating the emotional and supportive network that will be understanding that Using a cochlear implant isn't going to be just an overnight success. And even that unspeakable reality of cost and access and how to get into the right insurance level now should be shared knowledge because that is a hurdle that these patients face. All that stuff makes sense, I think, when you explain it. But I know that that is very uncommon globally that professionals would go through those prehabilitation steps, especially several months before someone has an implant. Why do you think that is the case? Because you're setting them up for success. Yeah. Just as we set up children for success and the end point is not the surgery or the switch on or the mapping, but the acquisition of listening skills. Yeah. Let's aim as high. Yeah. And that's strongly for our adult elderly patients. Why don't more professionals do that? Like, why isn't there more prehabilitation? 
because the way that clinics have run to date yeah. have been a little bit introspective, okay. have been centred on the clinic, mm. that the patient doesn't have any relevance to an implant clinic until they've had a cut. Yeah. <laughs> but their hearing loss has existed perhaps years or decades before that and needs treatment before as much as after. So we talked about how we see audiologists and surgeons see preoperative patients together. Yeah. I also see each postoperative mapping or rehab patient together with the audiologist. You do? Yes. So that's interesting because I know, um, and do you do that just for one session, couple sessions, depends? As I consult, yeah. there are four other rooms yeah. where there are either real time, real person, or virtual rehab sessions, yeah. group sessions, programming, yeah. switch-ons, assessments that are happening. And that has made me a much better surgeon, yeah. seeing how these patients are, one month, three months, six months, 12 months, who are the patients that have really struggled, who I thought would do really well? Yeah. Who has done really well, who I thought would do really poorly? Mm. So um, as a surgeon, we have a role to counsel precisely as much as we can, as much as we can look into the crystal ball to predict how a patient will go. So uh, we recently spoke with a couple of surgeons in Europe who do a similar thing, and yes. they um, follow patients audiologically post-surgery. Uh, it strikes me that that's really uncommon, though. That the, the approach that you described isn't very common uh, across the world. It's not common, but yeah. it's possible now. Yeah. Because a lot of these programmings, a lot of this rehab is virtual. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. In 10 minutes, um, I can be in contact with 30, 40 mm -hmm. group rehab patients and ask them how they're going. Yeah. And they're delighted to see an implant surgeon yeah. long after this the last ditch has been removed. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's a blessing both ways. I think I get more out of it than the patients yeah. do. Yeah, <laughs> And the patients uh, would probably argue vice versa. Do you, do you see more surgeons adopting that approach or it's a bit of a slow go? It's, it's a bit of a slow go and it's a bit unusual. Yeah. I've been blessed with working with top implant audiologists in Sydney. Yeah. And it's really been out of curiosity why have some people done well? Why have they not done well? Yeah. And taking responsibility as a surgeon mm -hmm. for their full journey and the journey that you're going to counsel future patients about yeah, when it comes to a cochlear implant. Yeah, so you'd mentioned earlier that you, you think um, seeing patients three, six, 12 months after surgery has made you a better surgeon. Is that predominantly because you feel like you're better at counseling? Are there other aspects to that? Really just better at counseling. Yeah. Okay. Not a surgeon that's over-promising yeah. or under-promising. And our surgeons and I don't, don't get it right all the time. Yeah. But you've got to see how they go. I, I think that's, it's an interesting trend that we're seeing more and more surgeons 
um, say exactly what you did that, yeah, you know, I didn't used to do this, but now I do. So just to pivot a little bit, um, I'm curious, let's talk about COVID. So how has COVID affected sort of your business, your practice? Um, we talked a little bit about some of the innovations that have come out of that, but what else has happened? What have you learned from the process? Um, how do you think it might affect the way that you practice and uh, do business going forward? COVID has done one thing. Yeah. And yes, it's, it's brought the technology to the rise yeah. by both its adaptation, its adoption by patients, clinics, and clinicians. Yeah. But the biggest thing COVID has done yeah. is change the thinking of clinics yeah. and patients. Yeah. For clinics, it's no longer about the clinic's convenience of the patient walking in or traveling from a country area. Yeah to a metropolitan area for six hours for a 10-minute program. Yeah. COVID said it was no longer possible. Yeah. And for patients, it's empowerment and um, ownership yeah. of their own hearing destiny mm -hmm. and their own hearing outcomes, mm -hmm. and they don't know it. But the technology to do that is often in their palm. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I've heard from a few audiologists about the, the difficulty or it's been a challenge to help, especially older patients, use smartphones and mobile phones and, and do all of that. But I wonder if, you know, COVID sort of forced the issue. And so it's upskilled everyone in their ability to... It has. Yeah. It has. And the real shame is that all those skills, all that technology has been under our nose. Yeah. It takes a disaster to, for us to come out of our shell, yep. rethink the way we do things, yeah. rethink who's in the centre of the clinic. Maybe it's not the clinician. Yeah. Maybe it's not the clinic. Maybe it's the patient. Yeah. And when the patient is in the centre of the clinic, you can do nothing wrong. And come up with cool ideas like uh, group trivia. Absolutely. Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Dr. Chang, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Hearing Health today. And it's been a real pleasure actually speaking uh, to you in person. You bet, Craig. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being in person. And thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed it, please make sure you press the subscribe button and give us a rating and a review. If there's a particular topic you'd like us to cover, please mention it in your review. We'd love to hear from you. You can find all the links to what was discussed in today's podcast in the description and stay tuned for our next episode. In the meantime, stay safe. Just a quick reminder, the views of the interviewees in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Cochlear Limited or its subsidiaries. This material is intended for health professionals. If you are a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Outcomes may vary, and your health professional will advise about the factors which could affect your outcome.